Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alex Jennings, author of the debut novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves. The novelist Walter Mosley wrote about The Ballad of Perilous Graves, a hallucinatory wonder of a debut, brimming with language and music. This phantasmagoric novel taps the deep root of multicultural, multiracial life in and beyond New Orleans. Alex Jennings is a teacher, author, and performer living in New Orleans. His, his writing has appeared in StrangeHorizons.com, Podcastle, Obsidian Lit, the Locus Award-winning Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia Butler, and in numerous anthologies. His debut collection, Here I Come and Other Stories, was released in 2012. And he is a graduate of Clarion West and the University of New Orleans. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your debut novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves, how would you describe the novel? I like to say that at its heart, it's a sort of black exploitation Pippi Longstocking adventure where uh, the Pippi character and her friends have to catch nine songs of power who have escaped from uh, Professor Longair's enchanted piano. Uh, and bring them home before the city ceases to exist. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the Ballad of Perilous Graves? I do. Um, I moved to New Orleans in the summer of 2006, when it was very much still reeling from uh, the failure of the federal levees and the destruction of Hurricane Katrina. And uh, I remember reading a lot of news stories about kids who were forced to return home to the city without their parents and fend for themselves. And that immediately made me think of Pippi Longstocking and, you know, recontextualize her as a little red bone girl living in Central City um, in a house all around. And I'm curious, what was your initial writing journey that led you to write and get your first stories published? Oh, um, well, I had been studying poetry at the Evergreen State College where I was going, and um, I began writing short stories and submitting them to places like the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And um, at one point, Octavia Butler came to speak to my writing workshop, and afterwards, uh, her ride was late picking her up, so she came into the writing center where I worked, and she sat at a table with maybe six of us and um, just talked to us for a good hour and a half. And uh, during the course of that conversation, she asked me if I wrote every day, and I said yes. And uh, she told me to apply to the Clarion West Writers Workshop and told me that if I applied, I would get in. And... uh you know, I was racked with doubts and and very confused by what she said because she had never read any of my work or anything. Um, but I took the risk and did apply, and I did get in. And uh, that was, I'd say, that kind of completed my journey to publication as far as short stories. Um, it didn't happen right away. It was still another couple years, but Clarion West gives so much information so quickly 
that it can take years to fully digest it. And uh, I think I had fully digested it by, you know, 2005 when I started selling stories. That's great. <clears throat> and it's also great, your, your story about Octavia Butler. Uh, obviously, she's no longer with us. So that's a wonderful story that you had a chance to talk to her for an hour and a half. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, she was also at Clarion West because at the time they were still setting up the Science Fiction Museum in Seattle. And uh, so they were doing these oral history interviews. And uh, she came in for a couple of days and uh, Ursula Le Guin was there as well. Wow, that's wonderful. So can you tell us about your Clarion West experience? Um, well, I tell people that I think it was easier to get in in my day because uh, I went in, in 2003. Um, and I feel like the people that I see going now have a lot more credits and a lot more going on in their careers. Um, but it's an intensive workshop where, at least when I went, they would, they would put you up in a... Um, in a sorority house in the U district of Seattle. And, uh, you know, there was a, a private chef there and, uh, each week, um, a science fiction luminary would come in and teach an Iowa style writing workshop. And uh, also meet with the students individually. And you're, you're turning in a story a week. And it is, it is a, a pressurized environment. And how, how, how was it for you to write a story a week? I know some people kind of, um, struggle with that. Uh, it was, it was, I wouldn't call it easy, but it was definitely doable for me. I think I really complicated it for myself because I felt that the story that I, um, turned in to get accepted was dead. And, uh, most people use that as their week one story. But I wrote a whole other story in week one because I didn't want to, you know, spend my time with Nancy Kress uh, talking about that. And uh, that was that was intense. <laughs> well, well what, were, what were some of the instructors? You just mentioned Nancy Kress and you said that Octavia was there. What were some of the other instructors the year that you went? It was Nancy Kress. Kathy Goonan, um, Elizabeth Hand was there. I'm not sure which week exactly. Mm -hmm. um, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, China Mieville, and uh, Samuel R. Delaney. Those were our instructors. Wow, that's amazing. So <clears throat> what was your writing process when you were working on The Ballad of Perilous Graves? Did you outline the book before you started, or did you just jump into the narrative? I didn't outline the book before it started. I kind of just jumped into the narrative. I kind of, I kind of felt like writing this book was in some ways almost like working a case as a detective um, because it felt less like making things up than interviewing people to figure out what really happened. So, you know, I would generally have an idea of what happened next when I was writing, but sometimes I would get through a scene and realize that I had gotten it wrong. And so I would sit down with my characters and interview them to ask them what actually happened. I don't even remember how I came up with the idea, but surprisingly it worked. Um, 
And that was able to get me out of a lot of, you know, tight spots. And I'm curious, given the fact that you've been writing a while and, and publishing short stories, was this the first novel you'd ever written? No, this wasn't the first novel I'd ever written. Um, I had written two others before that, at least. I know earlier in my career, um, I was taking the same novel and rewriting it over and over again. And uh, letting go of that was a painful process, but I'm glad that I did. I, I did go back and look at it uh, after selling The Ballad of Perilous Graves. And I realized that like that last draft of that novel, like, I could have sold that if I had kept uh, doing the legwork. Do you think you'll still try to sell it at some point? Not in its current form, that's for sure. Like maybe I'll rewrite it completely and try to sell it then. Well, are you working on another novel now? I am. We're in the beginning stages and I think I think people will be pretty pleased. Great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Well, I'd say that the most important thing is not to quit, but um, it's also important to play to your own strengths and figure out how to compensate for your weaknesses. And um, one of the best ways of doing that is to get a little bit of well-placed instruction here and there. Um, For me, the best thing that came out of Clarion West was I had a much better idea whether a scene was working early on um, because in the, in that pressurized environment, we had to produce so quickly that um, I could immediately make a snap decision of like, okay, I need to do this over because this isn't working or this is the way this needs to be in this story and, and keep going. That's interesting. Well, what novels or short story anthologies have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, well, um, let's see. I recently read uh, The Rib King by Lady Hubbard. And uh, then her follow-up to that, uh, The Last Suspicious Holdout. Um, I am continually amazed by her writing. She, uh, she, stuttered, she studied under... Why am I blanking on her name? She's so important. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Nobel laureate. Toni Morrison. Yes. Look, I guess it's kind of early in the morning for me, but yeah. So, so she studied under Toni Morrison and it, it shows, but not in the way that there is a, an imitation, but just in the way she attacks story and the way she writes lyrically and the humanity with which she portrays her characters, um, whether they're supposed to be quote unquote villains or not. Um, I also read, um, the ones who don't say they love you by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Uh, that's a fantastic book. It's, uh, mostly it's pretty much realist fiction set in new Orleans and it's all like short, short stories. And unlike myself, Maurice is born and raised in new Orleans and he, he understands the city and the culture and its people 
uh, very deeply. And he just he uses that understanding to illuminate the human condition in ways that are continually surprising. So I'm curious, what motivated your move to New Orleans? Well, um, I started coming here for fun in 2003. Um, yeah, it was 2003, but yeah. Uh, and I fell in love with the place. It really reminded me of Paramaribo, Suriname, where I'd lived for two years um, in middle school because um, my father worked for the State Department. And there was just a, a pull to this place. Like I, I felt called to, and I began to notice that there were moments when the city touched my life when I was younger. Um, like when I was little, I heard Aiko Aiko on kids songs or something like that. And <laughs> it, it really made a deep impression on me. And I, I asked my mother about it and she told me that, you know, there's a lot surrounding that song and she took me to the mall and got me a book about mardi gras indians from uh the bookstore and like it's just you know i've I've been to a lot of places and i've i've seen a lot of what the world has to offer and new orleans is it's particularly unique in its influence on world culture in its food ways, in even down to the way things like slavery operated here. Um, it's not that it was somehow better here or something, but allowing enslaved people to run their own businesses and to congregate in Congo Square on Sundays, uh, it created a sort of environment conducive to bringing the spirit and jazz into the world and uh yeah i I just felt called great well you mentioned earlier while you were writing this novel that there were times where you felt like a scene wasn't working so you would interview your characters to figure out what was going on can you tell us how that worked that process right okay so i i will admit that i have a bit of a quasi mystical approach to writing Um, but I am aware that the characters and the plot are fully under my control, but finding ways to sort of create the illusion of autonomy in my mind really helps me draw a bead on how the story needs to be portrayed. So what I would do is I, I was living at this place in central city back then uh, that had a saltwater pool in the back courtyard. And what I would do is I would go sit at a table by the pool and uh, sit down with like a pad and paper and just imagine the character sitting at the table with me and um, begin asking them questions, like not out loud, but like on the page and uh, like listening for their responses. Like that's the only way I can explain it. And, uh, yeah, it, it worked. That's great. Well, when you usually sit down to write a new short story, do you usually have an idea in mind or are you writing from an image or just a one sentence? How does that work for you? I mean, it, it really depends. Like for me, there's no one size fits all approach uh, to short stories. 
Um, and so there have been times when I started with an image, like something that I saw when I was watching a TV show or something that just popped randomly into my mind or something that I remember from a dream. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a few words or a snatch of dialogue, but I usually have a pretty good idea of where the story is going uh, when I start. And I usually write scenes in order. And yeah, it's like, I feel like in some ways I still haven't refined the process because even when I was writing short stories and selling them all the time, like I, I had this sort of like crisis of understanding where I was like, I don't actually know how to write a story. Like just because I wrote the last story well and I, I got through it and I sold it and published it. That doesn't mean that I know how this next story needs to start or what it needs exactly. Like I have to be constantly in conversation with the work in order to uh, convince it to reveal itself to me. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Magic Negro, M-A-G-I-C-K-E-R-O. And uh, that's, that's primarily where I spend my time. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alex Jennings, author of the debut novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Alex, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Paul. Great. Thank you. She reached up and rubbed the dusty back window of the car, letting the daylight shine through the clean space. When they get real loud, we'd be able to look at them through there. I didn't know you could do that. What? Pick up a car, Perry said. I didn't know you could pick up a car. It's just a car, a itty-bitty one. Yeah, but how come you so strong anyway? Why, you always got to be asking questions all the time, she said. We're supposed to be quiet. Spider-Man got bit by a spider, and Superman crash-landed. How come you're so much stronger than normal folks? Peaches made a rude noise. There ain't no such thing as normal people. Anybody pay attention to anything know that. But you're really strong. Perry, you ever try to pick up a car? No. Then how you know you can't? He had no response to that. You know what your problem is? When a grown-up tell you something can't be done, you just believe them. Don't you know they ain't even no such thing as grown-ups? What? They ain't, she said. They're all just old kids pretending. Now keep quiet. Perry did as she asked, but what Peaches had told him made his head hurt. He knew she was at least as smart as he was, but sometimes the things she said made no sense. No such thing as old kids pretending? That couldn't be true. Grown-ups were grown-up. They knew what they were doing. The city, the world. Couldn't just clatter along with nobody in charge? If Perry's father was just an old kid, then how could he be so good at math? Perry had seen the man make instant calculations, adding up how much things cost, how much money to tip in the restaurant, that Perry felt he'd, at the very least, need pencil and paper for until the day he died. They could hear the music now. It sounded like jazz if jazz could be played sideways. 
All the notes seem stretched into the wrong shapes. The horns, the piano, and even the beat of the drums. The sound made Perry's skin cling tight to his bones and little cat feet of terror walked across his back. They shouldn't be here, and Perry had no idea how, when the time came, he would find the courage to look. It's okay, Peaches whispered. Perry tried to believe her. After a few beats, Peaches lifted herself on her elbows. Oh, oh, man, she said. Perry wavered a bit, then levered himself up to look. He'd heard all about the Peabody's before, but never from anyone who'd actually seen them up close. Everyone in NOLA knew it was best to make yourself scarce when the Peabody's were on the march. Well, they were always on the march, but there were only a few crews, so it was easy enough to steer clear. Perry had always imagined them as inhuman monsters, wizened and made ugly by the effects of the paint. But they looked healthier than he expected. Somehow, he'd also imagined them as naked. And in the large mass of them, Perry thought he saw maybe one or two naked ones, sunburned and paint-streaked. But most of them wore costumes cobbled together from common household items, ordinary street clothes, and the kind of novelty mask you could find in any of the tourist shops on Decatur or Canal. All their costumes were spattered with layers upon layers of paint. Some of their coloring was so thick, so caked on, that it actually did make them look inhuman. But Perry could tell those were the very oldest Peabody's who had been marching the longest. Many of them wore feather boas and beads, and they danced along without rhythm. Their movements didn't even match the bizarre sideways jazz that surrounded them. They herked and jerked like chickens, turning or swaying their heads without ever taking their eyes off the nearest graffiti tag. One of them reared back his head and belched a plume of purple fire into the air above him. One tag had blown up onto the sidewalk and was so badly slanted that Perry was unable to read it from here. Its edges had frayed with age, but it must still be a pretty good one. The lettering was no one color. Instead, it was a confusion of blue, orange, green, and pink, constantly shifting between hues. Three Peabody's walking in the front reached the tag. They started jostling each other, fighting for space. Each one wanted to be the only person to walk through the graffiti, but all three made it. The paint clung to their clothes, and they seemed to blur, melding with the floating colors until they snapped back into focus, more vivid now, realer than real, as if, while the world around them was 3D, they had an extra dimension. They howled like apes. The one on the right shook his head, and multicolored confetti poured from his ears. The one on the left grinned an impossibly large grin, and his teeth had become piano keys. Glowing pinwheels appeared in the middle one's eyes, and he staggered, drunk on magic, tripping up his companions who elbowed him in their irritation. Perry's scalp tingled. He ducked down again, shaking. I can't see anymore, he said. It's too... it's crazy. 
Once the parade had passed and the day had regained its eerie stillness, Perry and Peaches climbed out of the car. Perry's muscles ached from clenching and his sweat smelled worse than usual. He felt weak, like a shadow of himself. Why did we do that? He hadn't asked Peaches, but she answered anyway. We needed to see. We needed to know. Why, Perry asked. We got to know everything we can find out about the city, Perry. It's important. She watched him, but Perry found it impossible to return her gaze. Peaches reached out and touched his chin lightly, tipping Perry's face to meet hers. Your parents, Daddy Deke, your whole family, do they ever talk about why things in Nola's the way they is? The zombies, the haints, the trees growing Mardi Gras beads? No. I really did sail the seven seas, Peaches said. And even if I hadn't, I seen the TV. There ain't no place like Nola, not in all the world. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.